This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on Sign In, and then Create a New Account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show J.D. Miller and Dr. Chris Free. Now, J.D. is a career firefighter in Canada and has an incredibly powerful story of being abandoned and homeless at a very young age to the high-performing first responder that she is today. 
Dr. Free is a psychologist who came up with the diagnosis of operator syndrome, looking at the human holistically with all of the physiological and psychological impacts that contribute to mental health challenges. So we discuss a host of topics from JD's childhood, her journey into the fire service, her lowest point, Dr. Free's work in psychology, how he came up with this diagnosis, the shared concept of first responder syndrome, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you J.D. Miller and Dr. Christopher Free. Enjoy. Well, JD and Chris, I want to start by saying thank you so much for both, you know, coming from different places on planet Earth and joining me on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks for having me. Super, super. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start at the very beginning. JD, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, I am in a a small, small town called Coldwater in Ontario, Canada. Um, Yes, it is cold here today. Um, we're sitting probably, I don't know, somewhere around two degrees, whatever that looks like. We'll, we'll call it 32 degrees in your world, just about zero for mine. Um, on a small farm, log cabin in the woods, chilling after shift, working on some stuff for other first responders and stuff like that. So, but that's my, that's me in a nutshell. Excellent. And then Chris, where are we finding you? I'm on the east side of the big island of Hawaii. I live out in the country a little ways uh, north of Hilo. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start with both of your chronological journeys. So, JD, let's start with you. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Um, that's a really big conversation, my friend. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's not a really short kind of intro, in, intro to who JD is. That is really about who JD is. Um, I was born in a, in a potato town called Alliston, as in that was what they were known for growing. Um, I would have to say my my fun part of that journey was the whole time I was born in the hospital, I was the only female in the birthing unit. So I guess right from birth, you could say I got pretty comfortable being around guys. Um, Maybe that's why I I ended up with a career in firefighting. But, um, you know, life until I was about eight years old was on a 25 acre horse farm. It was in the country. It was everything you kind of sort of thought, you know, childhood should be. And then at about the age of eight, uh, this is where the story gets a little bit um, different. My parents separated and both parents abandoned me and I ended up living on the streets. Um, The story goes down there a lot farther. But at the end of the day, from the time I was about eight till I was about mm, 11, uh, I was on the streets, found myself a foster home from 11 till about about 10 to 11, somewhere in there. I'm not so good with 
time frames anymore, so you have to forgive me. Um, found myself in a foster home uh, of my choice. I asked to go in, and at the age of 12, moved back with my mom. At the age of 13, moved out on my own, and I've been on my own ever since. Um, from there, just kind of rocked out a life of uh, a thousand different jobs, moved into survival mode. Um, at the age of 26, decided I was working for McDonald's at the time, and I'd been working for McDonald's for about 10 years. And I was really sick and tired of people like losing their minds over Big Macs and French fries because you got their order wrong. I was like, good Lord, there's got to be more to life than this. So I started kind of kind of going, well, you know, what can I do with my life? Considered military. Um, but I really kind of sat down and meditated on who I wanted to be and what I wanted for my life. And being a mother is something I was really called to be. So I thought military maybe for me wasn't the way because I didn't want to raise a child um, in the military world, constantly moving. I was hope because my life was so turned upside down, I wanted to give my child a, a fairly significant kind of grounding. Um, so ended up, I applied for five paramedic programs. I and one fire, got approved for fire, into the fire journey I went. And uh, six years later, got hired. I've worked for three different fire departments, one volunteer uh, department down south in Ontario, and now I'm up north. And um, from there, I sort of suffered uh, where we, this is where we started to interlock with Dr. Chris, or sorry, Chris, and uh, suffered kind of an, an, a significant injury, um, which is where I think we're going to kind of dive into today. So we can, we can kind of wrap that one up. But, um, and just ever since then, I've just been on this journey of trying to take a different approach and, and trying to crack open um, so a much needed voice for our people and to try to unite our voices. And, and, uh, it's, and because of that, it's just amazing to be on your show, James. Um, thank you. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like the quick little, like quick hit, so. Well, firstly, I started this six and a half years ago and kind of naive, realizing that there was a, a physical health issue in the fire service, a mental health issue in the fire service. And then as this is slowly unpacked with all these great minds, whether they're experts in their field, whether they're people like you and I who are first responders experiencing a lot of these things, there were some real truths that came out. And one of the glaring ones was the impact of childhood trauma on so many of us wearing a uniform. So I would, if it's okay with you, love not to skirt over what happens to an eight-year-old child when both parents abandon them and then they find themselves on the street? So if you wanted to kind of explore that a little bit more, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, no problem. I actually, this is where it's going to get a little fun between you and I, because um, I watched your episode where you built the foundation of childhood trauma and you were articulating the impacts of childhood trauma and how the foundation is is changed from one perspective to the other. And I'd have to say, I was pretty mad at you at the end of that um, because I completely disagreed with you um, from that perspective. I do agree with you. I do believe that childhood trauma does play a role. And Chris, you're all on board for this one. You can come on in. I know your experience is a little more than mine. But I also believe that if you do the hard work and you are given the opportunity to heal, and you face that trauma, I don't like the word trauma even. To me, what I went through as a young child are all gifts 
they enabled me to be an amazing firefighter and to add an empathy component that I'm never going to apologize for. And that makes me me. And that allows me to go into, you know, standing into a huge pile of human feces on the floor and just curl up with somebody who's in the worst moment of their lives and thrive. And I get that because of what I went through. And, but I've also done the hard work of sitting with myself internally to heal and appreciate what I've been through. But it does make me a stronger firefighter. And I, and I do believe that with, with every single fiber of my being. But when I was an eight-year-old child, um, both my parents abandoned me, mostly because they had mental health issues themselves. Both have passed away. Um, I no longer have um, physical parents uh, with us today. From there, you know, when my parents both abandoned me, I ended up um, living on the streets. Like I said, we had no heat, no hydro. Um, we had no food. I turned to stealing. Um, my brother turned to drugs at the age of 13. He started drugs and he never stopped. I was held down and I was forced drugs. I was sexually approached by his friends. Um, I was molested. I ended up being physically abused um, by his friends and others around. I ended up turning into kind of leaning into bad relationships because I had nobody. So I was constantly searching for someone to help take care of me for a parental figure. At the age of 13, I was dating a 19 year old, um, moved in with them and they treated me as if I was much older, if that makes sense. And, um, I would go to school and I would hide the fact that I had no lunch and that I had no parents. I remember living on the 25 acre horse farm, coming home from school on the school bus and seeing horses dead that had gotten out because they had frozen and starved to death and realizing that it was because of me that the, like, I wasn't there to, not realizing, but at the time I felt like it was because I wasn't there to feed them or put them away. So I just became older and more responsible a lot faster than sort of maybe what a normal I have a 10 year old daughter so when she turned eight it was a I was it was like whoa this is I was whoa you were eight I was eight okay I was what <laughs> what happened I was going to be interesting when she turns 13 it'll be uh another whole perspective of where I went through my journey but um you know being in in drug houses all the time seeing physical things that um I shouldn't have been seeing um, those all give me empathy. Those all give me strength. Those are things that they were hard to go through at the time, but on the other side of it, I can use it and I use it well. You know, not too long ago, I came out where I was holding, you know, we did CPR and I, on a, a child. It was a five week old child. And I came out and then I know that I'm a mother and I know that the, stereotypical world says that I should not be okay in that moment but I was okay and I'm not going to apologize for it and when I had a week before Christmas just this year I ended up doing CPR on like my son's doppelganger like I was like holy crap like you are my son the way you look the way your body is the, it was the same car it was off the charts and the very first thing I did when I left the scene that day was I called my husband 
who's a firefighter also. And I said, like, hey, I'm not okay. And then I called my son and I said, I love you. And I said things to him that if I hadn't gone through what I had been through as a child, I wouldn't have known how to make take that action for what I personally needed. And I said things to him that should have been said a long time ago. I love you. You're the most important thing to me. And I was okay after that call. Even though he related to every fiber of what was important to me today. Um, so yeah, I, the childhood trauma is a piece and, and it is important to acknowledge it. But if you, if we as a society, as we as a people spend the time and face and work towards embracing what that difficult time has given us as a gift, then it becomes a wicked strength and one you don't apologize for. Well, I think that's, that's. What's surprising, I don't know if I articulate it properly, because that was the whole point, was an addressed childhood trauma becomes resilience, in my opinion. It becomes a superpower. Unaddressed is where it's that fragile um, foundation, and then you have the compounding elements of everything else that we do. So this is why I talk a lot about putting counseling at the front door. We're going to do PT in a fire academy. We're going to do pull hose and throw ladders. Why not have mental health, you know, counseling instead of polygraphs and, and psyche valves that do nothing so that, you know, you or I, I mean, I have, you know, the things that I brought into the fire service, we can address that at the front door and then have that shift, you know, the back injury you affect by altering the muscles in the body and doing the work to create strength and stability around the spinal column. The brain is no different. So that if, if that's how it came across, maybe I need to look at how I articulate it because it yeah. should have been once if we <laughs> process it, that that absolutely becomes a strength. Yeah. And um, it's very possible that my brain just shut off and was like, no, I'm going to disagree <laughs> with you right out of the gate. So let's not just uh, point fingers at you. I'll, uh, I'll point fingers at myself too, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I just I think the messaging that most um, approaches are taking right now is in, inaccurate. I think we we are a lot stronger than we give ourselves credit for. We're really called to a profession because of what we've been through. Um, and we have a lot to give um, because of what we've been through. And when you have the ability to say, I am stronger because of X, Y and Z, um, you really do become an influence in creating a culture change. And that's, that's, a, that's a key indication, a key, key component to what we as like yourself and that are using their voices are trying to do is trying to shift the culture. And that's, what's really important. And that's what, when I reached out to, to Dr. Chris and I'm, I just keep calling you Dr. Chris. He doesn't like the, he doesn't like the name doctor, but he's my Dr. C. So um, what I loved about, and I, and I, to this day, I'm just so in awe that he said yes to meeting some farm girl in the middle of Ontario when he lived in, you know, big fancy Hawaii. Um, he just said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet with you. And what I love about Chris is that he was pushing the boundary of culture. He's pushing the boundary of saying, you know, no, we need to find the answers. We don't need to use our bias. This is coming from a man who wrote a textbook about PTSD treatment. And... Um, and everywhere I looked in his community from a military perspective, they offered him incredible respect. And as we know in the firehouse, um, that respect is earned. It's not given. And so I felt like I'm going to reach out to this man because I think he can help our community. And, you know, I said, hey, knock, 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 small farm girl, want to answer? And he said, yeah. 
So I think uh, I think we should bring Dr. Chris into this combo a little bit, if that's okay. No, just, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to add, just kind of add something to what you said as well. This is a conversation I have with a yeah, retired yeah. Navy SEAL turned um, psychologist. Yesterday was. I agree with you 100%. And like I said, that address trauma becomes a superpower. And then you look at the way that our hiring practices are. I talked about the polygraph and I think it's the Minnesota personality interview test. It's a standalone thing. Both of those in in that, that whole world, and I want to get Chris's opinion on this, from what I understand, are not great assessments of our ability to do our job but what it does is it creates this bullshit facade that you're supposed to be a choir boy to become a firefighter or a cop i would argue the polar opposite of course there's things that we have done in our past that would eliminate us and rightly so if it's something with drugs or children or that kind of thing but over and above that you need to have had a rocky road i believe to to potentially be a great police officer firefighter or member of the military so Chris, I'm going to let you respond to everything that you heard up to this point. I'm intrigued. Yeah, I th- and, and I, what you guys are talking about resonates. Um, I don't want to say that every, so so my back, just for listeners, most of the work that I do, that I've been doing the last decade has been very, very focused on um, military special operations. And my what I've seen there is is very common for operators, military operators, like firefighters, like law enforcement, like probably all of the first responders, high rates of adversity in childhood. Um, and I'm going to use the word adversity instead of trauma. Trauma is a piece of it, for sure, in many, in many cases. Um, one thing that I've seen, um, I won't call this trauma, but adversity. A lot of the guys that I've worked with grew up without father figures. They were raised by their, by single mothers, um, or they had a father who was sort of in the home, but, but not really, not really present, not really being uh, what we expect of a father figure. So it's very common. And of course, we know that many people who have adverse, highly adverse childhood don't do well later in life. I mean, JD just mentioned uh, her brother who took a very divergent path than, than, than she's taken. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's not like all roads lead to the same place. They go in wildly different directions. And so how do you even, how do you even figure out who's going to go which direction and what are the factors that make that determination? Why is JD sitting here today with us um, calm, cool, collected, um, beautiful family, thriving career now, business. Um, she's calm and strong, and I don't know where her brother is, uh, and I don't know how to explain why her brother uh, isn't isn't with her. Or maybe it's I don't know how to explain how and why JD has had has become so successful and thriving in her life. I think we want to be careful of narratives that that put a put a destiny on specific childhood events. Um, I don't think there is a destiny, and certainly plenty of people who grow up in 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 non adverse childhood environments uh, often struggle in life. So um, we we can't 
really look at any one thing and say it's 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 you know the be all end all determinant for the rest of one's life. I also agree with what you guys were just saying about we've put way too much emphasis on the cons on the construct of post traumatic stress disorder. Um, and we've done that throughout our entire society. Part of what part of the story here, I think, with PTSD is that it is the it's really only the it's really the only psychiatric disorder that we acknowledge a specific etiology, a specific cause. If you open up, if you if you go to the psychiatric uh, book, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, that is kind of the it's the official record of what are the psychiatric disorders and what are their symptoms. And if you if you turn the pages and you read the book and you learn a lot about psychopathology, that's one of the things that, that can stand out is PTSD and acute stress reactions are essentially the only one ones, the only disorders in the entire book that have a cause sp specified, which gives it a very unique place in a society. And let's let's acknowledge we are a very litigious society. Um, having a psychiatric disorder that we can say is caused by an event um, that has a lot of weight and that has a lot of implications i think unfortunately what we've lost track of as a society but also thinking in terms of modern medicine and large healthcare systems such as the va we've we've forgotten that ptsd is not the only response to trauma it's not even the most common response to trauma. I would, I would, I would nominate depression, major depressive disorder, as the most common response, followed by substance use, substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And what even is PTSD? We could have a whole whole show on that. I'll give you my quick definition. It's depression plus anxiety plus some very specific uh, forms of fear reactivity. That are that we tie to the traumatic event. But if you do an evaluation of somebody who's never truly had it, what, what we might consider to be a, um, a traumatic event, but they've been divorced recently, or they've lost a job recently and are experiencing financial problems, you give them a PTSD questionnaire and they're going to score, they may score very high on it. They may look exactly like somebody with severe PTSD, even though they haven't necessarily had what we consider to be uh, a specific uh, trauma. Mm -hmm. So it's a very sociopolitical diagnosis, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, that multifaceted element is is something that's become, again, more and more aware. I mean, it used to be, I'm sure, J.D. would probably agree, like the fire service may be eight years ago, like, oh, it's what you saw, you know, and it seems to be the same with the military. Now, fast forward, you know, eight years, and for me, almost 750 conversations, I'm like, okay, so yeah, it's it could or could not be childhood trauma, as we talked about, you know, organizational betrayal, psych meds, alcohol, sleep deprivation, you know, marital problems, and you've got this incredible tapestry now of all these things. And, you know, as you said, there's also the reverse, like what happened with JD? When I look at my childhood, I'm very, very open about this. I'd never had that gun in the mouth moment. I didn't. And I look back and it's because for me, 
I grew up in a large family. We ate and laughed and, you know, drank around a massive dinner table. My parents, you know, marriage was not good and they had a horrific divorce. I almost died in a fire in a house fire when I was four. I mean, there was some pretty significant things, but there was nature. There was my dad was a vet, so I saw him heal animals. You know, we had this community. We had laughter. I never felt um abandoned by either of my parents. So I can see these factors that countered the trauma that I had. And then you kind of move forward. And I was, again, so lucky that I grew up in a wellness space, you know, academically and athletically. And so early on, I understood fitness and nutrition and, and the importance of sleep. And again, that by chance helped me. But mm -hmm. this is what is so fascinating. And I want to I walk you through your early life before we start this topic but the holistic human is is the you know the operational sorry the operator syndrome which we're going to apply to the first responder as well is that holistic model that i think so many people miss oh it's what you saw if that's all we do and we medicate or we do emdr of that thing and you miss all those other pieces of the puzzle and then you get these people that are desperate because well so and so couldn't fix me i must be completely insane i'm just going to end which is what happens all the time, which is what happens all the time. We have very we have a very fragmented healthcare system or approach to healthcare. So you've got the psychologist or the social worker that does therapy, but they may never think about their patient's hormones or, or chronic pain. You may have the psychiatrists uh, nibbling on one part of the problem, but not really looking at the bigger picture of the patients um, of their patient's health. Um, and I think we've we've to our great detriment, we've ignored the importance of hormonal disruptions, circadian disruptions, chronic pain. How do you sleep when every joint in your body hurts? How how are you not irritable with your friends and loved ones when you're in chronic pain? Um, and, and and if we if we acknowledge what traumatic brain injury, means, which too often we don't. Um, I'm amazed at how many of the operators I work with, uh, the VA will not acknowledge traumatic brain injury. And it's just like, oh my goodness, you got, you have people who, who have spent three months training with breaching. And then the next three months training with lar firing large rockets um, and then over the course of 10, 15, 20, 20 or more years, all of the blast waves, all of the impact forces that, that, their, that their head absorbs. And I'm talking about the military here, obviously, but I think there's almost certainly parallels mm -hmm. for firefighters and other responders. And we just don't really acknowledge it enough. We don't talk about it. Um, it just, it's just sort of like, eh. TBI, no big deal. It's in fact, we often call it mild TBI. The heck is mild? Right. Mild brain injury? Yeah. Well, I think it's also because we're stuck in clinical spaces. And I think that's what takes operator syndrome and firefighter syndrome responder syndrome to a different level because it moves it into the workplace and it starts to evaluate it from an out, outside the clinic. Excellent point, JD. So so I think what you're saying is the con the professional context of the injuries is vitally important. 100%. And, yeah. And so you have a, a garden variety medical provider who really wants to help their patients, but they don't know anything about what it means to have um, had a career in firefighting or law enforcement. 
they, they can't, it just, there's no cultural competence. Uh, no. And for, most for of the time, meetings. sorry, most of the time, James, I'm sure you can speak to this as well. You, as a firefighter or a, a police officer, or even a military, if you're going to an outside clinician space, you spend most of the time arguing, trying to get the tests because you, you haven't, you, you know, your environment, you know what you've been through and you're like, I, you know, you're, you're, you're asking for help and you're, you end up arguing with the, the clinician, whomever it is, trying to educate, you spend more time educating them and then they make a final decision to not give you the tests because it doesn't suit what they think you need. Um, and so we don't get the opportunity to participate in our own health um, because they're, they're uneducated and they can't appreciate the environment. And it's an unintentional bias. It goes back to that unintentional, you know, not an, not an intentional malicious act to, to not understand. It is, it's really just because they don't know. And so you end up fighting for and getting tired asking for help. And so you don't go and you drink your face off so you can go to sleep or you smoke a big fatty so you roll over, right? Whatever the situation is, you find ways of coping. And all of the ways that we end up coping usually help hurt. Our, we end up being our own worst you know, advocates by making bad choices. Um, I didn't grow up an academic. The only, I had, only college I ever went to was so I could be a firefighter. I was the first one in my family to even graduate high school. So when it came to, you know, health and wellness, I wasn't, you know, I was lucky if I ate a box of macaroni a day, craft dinner and ketchup, like we're, we're, we're happy, you know? Um, so nutrition wasn't a part of my upbringing. And so by the time I got into firefighting, I had to just develop such a splatter of bad habits um, that once I, be, you know, I was strong emotionally, but physiologically I was, I was weak going into a environment that, you know, when it comes to endurance and strength, I had that check, but from a molecular kind of cellular level kind of foundation, I wasn't at my top performance. So, you know, fast forward into 15 years of being a firefighter, getting hit with job-related constellations of gong show. Here I am sitting on a shelf going, I'm not okay. What's going on with me? And But because of what I had been through as a child, emotionally I knew what I could handle so all of a sudden I couldn't um I had to you know I had to take my cape off and put it on a shelf for a little bit and say what's wrong with me and I was like I'd been through so much and I had so much capability behind me and I'm really the type of person that says yep I can do anything um through enough education and enough practice you can really do whatever you put your mind to and all of a sudden I was facing this angry empty space where I had nothing left and I thought, well, I had already been through all of that crap. Now, why am I not okay? And that's where we're, Dr. Chris comes in and he's like, well, hey, let's take a look at your job. And we spent two years pulling studies and asking and interviewing. And, and I would go back to the fire hall and I would talk. To, my husband's a firefighter too. So I'd be like, honey, go talk to your firefighters. Ask them this. You know, is it, are they the same as me? You know, and he'd be like, shut up. You ask them. I'm like, no, no. And, uh, you know, and you just, you watch all the podcasts and you're like, there's more out there like me. And then it wasn't until, I don't know, what was it, October we published in Crackle Magazine. We reached out to Corey and he was like, let's publish it. Let's see what goes on. And when we published Firefighter Syndrome from our perspective of all the things, you know, you identify these 19 domains that are firefighter specific. And you say, these are the things that injure you, you know, at a cellular molecular level and they mimic mental health. You get these things in check, you know, you're a whole new person. 
you have a whole new outlook on life and you return back to what you were originally called to do, which is serve the public in a fierce, awesome way. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to unpacking that just before we do. Um, you know, Chris, you ended up, as you said, working with elite warfighters in the psychology and psychiatric space. If you wouldn't mind, give me just a quick overview of your backstory. So where you were born, what your upbringing looked like, and then walk me through your journey through the, the world of mental health. Sure. Um, okay. So I was born in New York City, 1963. My father was a, at the time, was a medical student at Columbia University. And we moved away from New York City pretty shortly. I think I was probably six months old when we moved away. So I have no memories of it, of course. But my father was was a, a physician in training. Um, so we moved for his internships and residencies and such. He also was in the Air Force for a significant period of the 1960s, including a, uh, a deployment to, to Vietnam, to the Vietnam War with, in the Air Force as a physician. Um, and then in, I would say in the 1970s, which is kind of where my real memories uh, begin, uh, I was, we lived in Columbia, Missouri, and my both my parents had views of the war uh, that were, I believe, I don't, I don't actually know from a political perspective what either one of them thought, but they were both very anti-war. And they took our family into the uh, into the friends meetings. So throughout much of the 1970s, I, as a child, as, a, as an adolescent, attended Quaker meetings. And Quaker meetings, the Quaker approach to faith, if, if for those who don't know, is um, it's, it's informal. It doesn't involve a lot of ritual. Uh, you don't have a, an authority figure standing at the head of the congregation. It's more of a collective. And one of the principles is is being is conscientious subjector status. So I was raised kind of from the perspective of we want you to be not not a warrior. That was probably my parents' perspectives. I also had a an influential figure in my my childhood who was my great grandfather, who was approaching a hundred. Uh, he was about a hundred when he died, um, and he was he had been a soldier and fought in the Spanish American War. Oh, wow. 1898, he fought at the Battle of San Juan Hill, San Juan and Kettle Hills. So I went through, you know, just a pretty traditional um, path, went to college, took a couple years off, decided to go, go get a PhD in clinical psychology. Uh, and really, when I went to graduate school, I wanted to, I wanted to work with veterans. Um, and, I, and I did my I did a dissertation related to post traumatic stress disorder, and then my my final year of training was at a VA hospital in Charleston, South Carolina. And after that year of training, I segued right into a job there in Charleston. So for 15 years after that, I worked at the VA as a as a clinician in a PTSD clinic. I also, after about seven years, started getting federal research grants to study PTSD and related mental health issues in veterans, but also in community mental health uh, patients. And I was at the Medical University of South Carolina, so I had an academic um, component to, to my work. Um, in 2006, I moved to Hawaii, at the University of Hawaii. I'm at the branch campus here, uh, teach. That's really all I do here. 
I also had work in Houston for about 12 years. Um, I was the, I directed research programs at the Menninger Clinic, uh, affiliated with Baylor College of Medicine. And then when that wrapped up, I was recruited by the University of Texas Medical School Psychiatry Department in Houston to set up a center for veterans, um, mental health research and treatment. And I did that part, that was a part-time job for me. I did that traveling to, to Houston every month. Um, just, it was a part-time gig. So the story of how I got involved with the uh, military special operations is, is probably not terribly exciting. Um, it was it's just something that kind of happened. It was never planned or mapped out. Uh, a friend of mine in Houston who, who was a Navy SEAL um, essentially was struggling a little bit and said to me, I don't understand what's going on. I'm not myself. I look in the mirror and I don't recognize myself anymore. And some of that was physical. He put on some weight, um, but I think it was much more than physical. Um, and he had a number of problems. And I think I arrogantly started out with the idea, and this is about 10 years ago, maybe more. I think I arrogantly started out with the idea of, oh, me, I'm an expert. PTSD, I got this down. I got this. I'll help my friend. Um, he didn't have PTSD. He had other things. And as we kind of worked our way through those other things, trial and error, things I had never thought of, started finding things that didn't even make sense to me. Why did my friend have low testosterone? He was 37 years old, maybe 36. Low testosterone in, a, in, a, in an elite Navy SEAL? And by the way, he had been at the elite unit. He'd been on many of the uh, famous missions that movies have been made of. So, I mean, this, this is a badass. And here he is with low testosterone. How do you make sense of that? Eventually, he, he as he started to do better, some of his friends started to reach out to me. And so did the same thing, conversations with them. And after a while, after, you know, talking to 10, 15, 20, and then, you know, that number grew gradually over the years, Pattern recognition, it's the same. I was seeing the same things. It was traumatic brain injury. It was low testosterone. What? What? Low testosterone? It was, and I'm gonna I'm gonna confess, I didn't really understand traumatic brain injury myself at the time, as I do now. And I didn't understand the 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 what blast wave exposures do. So there was a there was a piece of this that I had to learn. And I think that's missing for a lot of care providers who work with veterans is they don't understand that simply being in the vicinity of a blast causes an injury. Blast waves go through our bodies. Um, the other thing that shocked me was the, the rate of obstructive sleep apnea. Essentially now at this point, if I talk to a soldier, either active duty or separated Two of the very first questions I ask is, have you had your testosterone and other hormones checked with a blood test? And have you had a sleep study? Because that's how we diagnose uh, sleep apnea and other sleep disorders. And that's almost like the first thing. Go do those two things. Fairly simple, fairly straightforward. Any primary care doc, once persuaded, can make mm -hmm. those referrals and get that stuff happening. Um, I wrote up 
uh, a little white paper that I was using for several years as just a, a document I would share with the guys I talked to and their spouses. Um, and eventually some of my colleagues and I who were doing some similar things, we, we started comparing notes and, and we, we wrote this up as a paper uh, that was published in the medical literature in 2020. Now I tell, tell folks, print this paper out, highlight everything in here that makes sense to you, that resonates, take it to your primary care doc. That's, a, that's just as a start, just as a start. And you're already better off um, rather than assuming it's all psychological and mental health is your only avenue. Well, that illustrates something that I just heard recently. I actually traveled the world in a thing called 7X with some Navy SEALs. Um, and one of the guys who joined us about halfway through, his name's Kagan Gill. And he, from what I understand, is the only guy who survived an ejection from a fighter jet at the speed of sound, so almost 700 miles an hour. He had this physical rehabilitation journey, all his bones were smashed to pieces, but then he started having quote-unquote mental health issues, and they treated it as PTSD. And it was such a such a disaster the treatment plan that he ended up in a psychiatric ward, like literally, you know, almost clinically insane at one point. Um, and they totally missed the TBI. This man hit the atmosphere at 700 miles an hour before How then. How many G's is that? I forget what he said now, and I'll probably that's get it wrong. Of, that's a lot of G's. Yeah, enough G's to rip off his entire jumpsuit pretty much from his body just through the air. So that, that gives you a, an illustration. But that is just it. And then I want to get to JD next. But I mean, I, I see the same thing in our profession, not so much with acute trauma, but with the chronic sleep deprivation yes. and what that does to the body. So um, let's shift to, to JD because you, you talked about having this resilience, you know, despite some of the things that happened when you were younger, you know, you had the ability to perform. And I had a similar thing, you know, a lot of these, these child calls, they didn't haunt me, even though sometimes they were very similar to my son's age. There was one car crash, um, it was a decapitated child, and that was the exact same age. And it, it wasn't fun to be at, but again, it never haunted me per se um talk to me about that journey from seeming like you had that resilience to that breakdown that you found later on in your career oh my goodness um i guess for me um it starts with kind of actually unpacking the word resilience when you when you when you look at the very definition of resilience it it really just means to return back to original shape um, and so I'm not a big fan of that word, um, and we use it often. Um, I like to think more, my journey is more about perseverance, which is the ability to get through uh, successfully. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from a mental choice of no matter what you face, I'm going to get through it. Um, that was really kind of what was given to me. Let's go back to that you know, early conversation where I developed that as a young kid. You just, you, you, you figured your way around whatever it was that you were facing. You just, you either did or you didn't. And if you didn't, you know, you ended up like my brother who's still, you know, still fighting massive addictions and criminal charges. And, you know, I love him to pieces. He's still my brother, but, you know, I chose to stop enabling him many years ago. But so that perseverance, I think, is the more accurate term for me um, that I like to sort of lean on. And so that, you know, when I went, when I made the choice to become a firefighter, um, 
I didn't know. I had no idea. I was uh, probably about 110 pounds soaking wet, working for McDonald's. I was actually small, you know, I didn't eat the food. Uh, and, you know, you worked 15-hour days just going, 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 going. You never stopped. So I thought, you know, again, I'm going to figure out something to do different with my life. So there was a lot about me that I had to sort of evaluate and say, can I do this career? And make a cognitive choice as to, yes, I could, or be honest with myself and say, no, I can't. Um, I decided to say, yes, I can, because that's what I do. And, you know, I started working out and I started the journey of, of figuring out what it would take to, to pass the physical, to pass the written. Um, because of not being present in school growing up, because of my parents not having that, you know, guidance over me, I wasn't strong academically. So the written tests were very, very difficult for me, um, especially the mathematic part and even the memory recall which I think, you know, having developed maybe a, a gift of forgetfulness of childhood issues, um, the memory recall, I had to really work at developing an ability to listen to the passages that we were required to do in Canada and then answer the questions for the test to get in. Physically, I had to kind of hit, I had to learn how to persevere through different types of fitness. And, and the very first time I did a fitness test, I failed. I had no idea what was expected when i went through as a firefighter the standards were still uh the same they hadn't reduced the standards they hadn't changed the standards it was you know they were the same for everybody since then the, the standards have changed and that's a whole other conversation <laughs> but um so i had to learn i had to grow and so it was really about persevering and finding my pathway through to to do what was needed um you know, I failed the test, I learned. I failed another test, I learned some more. And then eventually I just passed. And I started passing. And in my second interview, I got hired. Um, so I just got involved. I just became alive in the world of fire. Um, every recruit class that came in, I just jumped in. I wanted to learn. I wanted to be a part of molding the generations that came. Uh, never worked with uh, another female, female on my shift. Um, I've only ever worked with men. Even today, my department that I work at has uh, three other females, but I've never worked with them. Um, and uh, it's probably a good thing. Um, again, another conversation. But, um, you know, I just jumped in and I I learned and I and I wanted to get more involved. I got really involved with technical rescue and, and I would just thrive and I would just gobble up as much knowledge as I possibly could um, so I could become a better firefighter. I would I I would search out part-time jobs in the construction so I could gobble up knowledge from, you know, mechanical aptitudes that I lacked. Um, and they just added to the, you know, the firefighter toolbox, if you will, because that's the term we use. And I just continually, continually just added and but I was enjoying the process. It wasn't stressful, it wasn't difficult. But I can look back and you start to, you know, the question is, is where did it change? Well, it started to change for me when I started to withdraw from my community and I didn't really know what was happening. I couldn't see it happening. Um, I just, the guys would have a lot of fun and I'd just be like, I'm not in the mood. I don't want to be around it. Or um, you'd be like tons of jokes going on. And I just, I would, I would throw a joke and it would land flat. Well, that still happens. But that's, again, different story. But I was losing my ability to socially interact. And 
then I would just be come home and I had I was more irritable and I started to withdraw from my family. And so those those social isolation cues were starting to increase in multifaceted kind of spaces around me. And then I would get angry or I would. One of the ones that was really significant for me is I could literally walk from one side of my house to the other or from one side of the fire hall to the other, do about 20 things on the way. And I, I don't remember doing any of them. My husband's like, you're a disaster. I'm constantly picking up after you. I'm like, I don't know. I got nothing, right? I couldn't remember doing things that was just moving like a a glass of water. Um, I'd be like, where the freaking heck is my water? Or he'd be like, you moved something. You know, you put this away on me. I'm like, I didn't do it, you know? And I kept, so I started to have like these sort of blacking out moments. And then, so I started thinking, well, it was, so I got kind of nervous of just even that. And I can look back and I can say, you know, it was a multitude of different calls that maybe added to it. And at that time of my journey, there was no diagnosis. The only diagnosis was PTSD, moral moral injury, burnout, um, you know, anxiety, depression. And and I went there. I was like, hey, let's go. Let's let's where I want to get through this. I want to face everything I can in order to rejoin my community, to rejoin my tribe, my people, my family. I remember one day I was helping my daughter put her clothes away. And uh, since she was like super young, I've always fostered communication with her because I didn't have that with my folks. So I wanted to make sure I had it with her. And she has this ginormous fuzzy gray beanbag chair. And she lays down in the chair and she looks up to me, big crocodile tears. And she's like, mom, come here. And I said, okay, what's up? And I was yelling at her because I was like, put your freaking clothes away. And I was just, I was after shift. I was just angry. I had no patience left. And she's, so I sat down beside her and I was just like, what? And she's like, I'm, I'm losing my mom. What's wrong with you? And I was just like, gut wrenched. I, I was, my daughter had enough balls to sit there and say, mom, you're being a jerk. And that's when I realized that this ability, this coping mechanism that I had built up in me, um, had ceased working. Something wasn't working the way that I had always done it in the past. And this, this resiliency, I wasn't even returning back to original shape. I wasn't persevering thing through. I just, I stayed collapsed. I was in a collapsed state all the time. And because I, I know me and the only person that I am accountable to is myself. I realized that, that I now had to face something new that I had never faced before. And I had to figure it out and just checking these stale boxes of PTSD or moral injury or whatever, it wasn't working. I was trying to. And there had to be more. I'm, I don't really like they.com because they said so, you know, where'd you get that information? They.com. Like I always joke around in the fire service. It's, you know, the history of firefighting is, well, because they said so. Well, who the flipping heck are they, right? So where does it show me where it says that we have to follow this and I'll follow it. But if not, Let's figure it out. Let's find a different way. And the resiliency that I, or the perseverance, however you want to call it, that I once knew was gone. And I had to figure out a new way because I wasn't okay. Um, You know what? And I do remember, I remember the moment, I remember the, the exact moment when I knew I was in trouble. It was a structure fire. We were on route. 
you know, we, we, it was confirmed on route. And at that point, up until that point, it was like the toggle switch was going off. It was like playtime. Let's go. Right. Structure fires, like it's the money. So now all of a sudden the toggle switch didn't fire. And when I got on, and when I got on scene, um, I made choices that showed me that I was not okay. And I, I felt nothing. I said the wrong things. I did everything wrong. Um, I didn't participate in what I had sworn I would do 10 years before that, which was actually protect the people. I didn't participate in protecting my brothers that I was working with because I didn't care about them. And I didn't participate in protecting myself because I didn't care about myself in that moment. I've never had the stick that, you know, put the gun to my head moment, but I truly understand the pathway of what it feels like to digress quietly. And then all of a sudden explode into a place you didn't see coming. And I just don't want that to be for anybody else. If we have the ability to do something about it, stop sitting around the coffee table, drinking coffee and bitching about it, do something about it. Enter in Dr. Chris. Well, let's okay. bring bring Chris in for a second because I wanna I wanna talk about operator syndrome, but just JD hit an amazing point that I literally was talking to someone yesterday, another aha moment from these conversations. The the heroic stories that come out of the fire service, come out of the military, was, you know, let's say for example, the man who went, you know, into into the the enemy machine gun turret and you know ended up killing three people and saving his crew or the female firefighter that went into the burning building and and they made it out and they're like wow this is mind-blowing heroism now fast forward a few years i'm starting to realize that was that mind-blowing heroism or was that abandonment of uh you know self-preservation through possibly mental health challenges that created a near suicidal action Many of whom are probably dead and never get to be hailed a hero. They were just stupid and they ran into a building and they burned up. Some of them came out with a child, and you know we hold them as as hero, you know, as heroes. Of course, any one of us would try and facilitate any re any rescue that was not going to almost certainly you know result in our our own death, becoming part of the problem on the fire scene. But the more actions of heroism i hear about the more i realize oh, and i hear this from the battleground i hear this from people that have seen this you know they didn't bother putting their vest on anymore they stood up when people are firing at them whatever it was so in all the you know the operators that you got to to interact with did you have any of that observation of some of this um i guess you could argue almost suicidal actions happening on a fire ground on a battleground that were then misread as heroism rather than a giant red flag for their own uh, mental health hmm. i haven't i haven't heard or seen that not to say it's not there um, but i haven't seen it or heard of it what i have heard um i don't know anybody alive who who will accept being referred to as a hero what to 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 a man to a woman people will, will point at other people and say no they're the heroes i just did what i had to do uh, these other folks and usually often it's folks that didn't you know didn't survive i think there's a, a very powerful ethos certainly in the military but I, but i think in, in in the responder 
population too. There's an ethos of you're you're maybe not even there for the bigger cause, but you're there for the for the for the, for the person to your left and the person to your right. You're there for your for the for the brother and sisterhood, and what you're doing is driven by not wanting to let that that down them down. And then you yeah. have, and then you have the other thing, which I'm sorry, JD. No, you no, have the, no, other, no. You have the other piece of this, which is when you really learn about the stories, when you really hear people talk about their experiences, they're often so much more horrific than we can imagine, than we than is represented in movies and the media. I mean, just the now, I don't need to go into examples, but but the the horror of the violence and the bloodshed that that, that people have seen over overseas doesn't match up with what shows up in a movie. And nobody dies in slow motion in real life. That's the movies love that, you know, with inspirational music playing and the slow motion. Oh, it's 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 not like that at all in reality. So we have created these myths, I think, as a society, uh, and we do hold, in some ways, we hold our, our res first responders up on a pedestal, and some some of us do, many people do. And then the other, on the flip side, you have the, the narrative that says, oh, they're part of the problem. Responders are, are you know, they're, they're part of the problem, and we need to defund the police or defund yeah. the military or, or pull back on what we're doing. Um, for our whole society with with first responders and that's equally detrimental mm -hmm. jd your thoughts on that concept because i mean was that something that you saw within yourself like a, a, a starting to lose connection with that very self-preservation that's ingrained in all of us um i'd have to say i was going the other way i'd have to say it flipped for me um i've I've had a very healthy relationship with death. Um, part of my perseverance through life um, was I didn't have a physical father and my father manifested in a different way through my faith. And so my relationship with death is very healthy. Um, a couple of years ago, my father-in-law passed away and we came together um, and he died in this house and we, we did it differently. And I found that death was really beautiful for, for a, a weird statement to say. Um, for us in that moment, it is a part of, it is a part of life. Um, and so when I came into firefighting, I sort of said, okay, where's the proverbial line that I'm going to sign that says I'm going to get cancer. And where's the, you know, where's the movie, you know, backdraft ladder 49, which I've actually never seen. Um, kind of theatrics that I'm willing to embrace. You know, I I was not afraid of death, um, and I I don't want to call it on by any means. But um, I found for me it started to flip, and I started to become more afraid of it, and so I sort of pulled back, and that was part of the isolation. I was afraid of kind of putting myself out there and it was it but it wasn't it wasn't a traditional fear as in I was afraid of uh 
dying, it just became a bit of an irrational fear or an irrational thought process about multiple different things that would translate into 911 emergency calls as well, as well as real life. Or I would, I would really, I was really finding myself grasping at trying to protect my daughter. That's where I started to really notice um, an irrational kind of presence that I, I was starting to lose control over. Because I'm really like, no, like, get out there, girl, like, life's gonna knock you up and just kind of, you know, well, that might happen too. But that's again, um, it's gonna, it's gonna take you on and it's gonna, and it's gonna, you know, put you through the ringers and you need to face it. And I'm, you know, do it while you're with me, because I can help you get through it. Um, that way, when you're on your own, you'll be strong enough to figure it out. And I so I never, you know, when I started this journey, that was my perspective. And then I switched. Now, to say that I do know individuals that I can stand back and look at and maybe from from their perspective, if I'm going to judge them for a second, from an outside perspective, you know, I can see firefighters going into fires without balaclavas. Um, I can see, you know, you hear about, you know, stories of people that have made choices from, you know, not cho- choosing to not wear, you know, PPE at, at different ways or in a, at a different time. And, and perhaps they're tempting kind of death. But I know I can also say to myself, like, I've been into, I've pulled a couple people out of, of buildings, you know, burning buildings. I've been, I know that some people go through an entire career without having this experience. And at the, so far into my 15 years, I've had two. Um, and I've had, you know, situations where you're doing a rescue where you intentionally, you know, pull off PPE, not because it's, I'm trying to be risky, but because it's actually I've, I've done in that moment, I've done the risk assessment and I, and I have determined from my own perspective that if I don't wear that, or if I do wear that, I'm going to be hindering operations. And so I make a shift and I make a game time choice to improve my own performance in the moment. So I believe in the outcome is, is going to be successful if I do so. If I, if I wear the PPE, then I'm going to hinder or possibly even hurt the patient in which I'm trying to save. Um, so there is a kind of a, a broad spectrum of a lens that you can kind of look at. Um, and then it all boils down to it, it, the ultimate fire answer, which it depends, James. It depends on the person. It depends on the childhood trauma. It depends on the things that they're still kind of sorting through. Um, you know, we love that answer. So let's just inject that here. But for me, particularly, I was finding irrational thought processes happening all over my life, both at work, at home, that were generating a fear that I had never faced before. And so I became very aware of that. And I think now I've returned back to quite a healthy relationship with death. Um, and so if, if, you know, if, if I do lose my life in the profession, that's what I signed up for. And my family knows that. And we are an incredibly supportive, loving family. I'm very blessed. And so, and I talk to my daughter. Um, I don't hold it back. And I say, you know, there will be a time that I'm not here with you. And and because of our faith, I say, you can talk to me. I'll still hear you. And she 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 holds on to that. But the ultimate answer is it depends. Depends on the individual where they're at. Yeah. No, well, thank you for that perspective. Because I mean, like I said, I've had some people that there's an abandonment of uh, preservation of life. Some, I would argue almost the opposite with some of our 
you know, people in the States. I mean, we have such a, a physical health crisis at the moment, an obesity epidemic. How many of those people will believe like, well, it doesn't matter because I'm going to heaven. So I'm not too worried about this life, you know? So, I mean, like you said, it depends on the individual and their mindset. But if you get to that point of suicide ideation, how diligent are you at self-preservation as a police officer, as a firefighter, as a soldier, if you've already kind of got close to that point mentally? So I think this is what we're seeing in some of the some of the stories that I've heard. Well, Chris, obviously, JD finds you. I'm assuming the operator syndrome kind of uh, philosophy is already out there. So just to kind of get ahead of that, you start looking at these special operators through a more holistic lens. Talk to me that journey to the definition and the philosophy of operator syndrome. The philosophy, if I could call it a framework, instead of a philosophy, the framework is, is what, we're, what we're, we call kind of a whole systems framework. So we want to think about all of the systems that are relevant to the individual. So you got the nervous system in the body, the respiratory system, circulatory system, endocrine system, et cetera, digestive system. Then you have the professional system around the, the physical body. You have the family system. You have the community systems. And so trying to think about all of these things together in, in the sense of what is relevant, what is what what is happening in the profession that's affecting people's wellness and their health. And uh, for me, it usually, I think of it, in operators, I think of it as starting with traumatic brain injury. I'll put that at the top of the list. And I guess I would do that for responders as well. Um, and if you have a traumatic brain injury, we can go down the list. But let's let's take traumatic brain injury and circadian disruption. Circadian, you know, our 24-hour our cycle, which governs all of the systems in our bodies. It's not just a, a sleep-awake cycle. It's when is your digestion doing X? When is When are various hormones being released during that 24-hour cycle? So it is partially sleep deprivation. Yes, that's a huge problem, but it's also the shifting nature of, sleep, of work schedules that interferes with, with sleep uh, and the circadian. And so I believe that TBI and the circadian disruption and the chronic stress hormones that are being released contribute to hormonal dysfunctions, contribute to um, psychological and cognitive dysfunctions. People with traumatic brain injury are likely to have headaches. They're likely to have trouble concentrating, trouble with short-term memory. Trouble remember, remembering and learning new information is, is hard. Um, some other things that go along with that very commonly are vestibular problems, balance, having trouble with balance. Uh, a lot of folks I talk to describe themselves as will say they've grown clumsy. They stumble into door frames. Um, they have to sit down sometimes because they, they feel dizzy and nauseous. Um, and then you, you put on top of all of that alcohol or other substances to help, help with sleep, to help with relaxing, to help just kind of being able to kind of cope with family situations or life situations. And then you add depression, PTSD, irritability, worry, anxiety, overreact, overreacting to, to relatively minor stressors. 
And then what do you have? You have somebody who's not really able to do their job very well. They're not going to be a good spouse, a good parent. Maybe they'll be a good parent. Maybe they'll be a good spouse, but they won't be the best version of themselves. It's probably a better way for me to phrase it. Uh, and I've seen a lot of marriages uh, not survive. And I think the divorce rate in, in, in special operations is over 100%. Typically, soldiers um, will have two, three, four marriages. Um, that's very common in the responder uh, community. So we know that there's family. This affects the family. Um, it affects sexual intimacy and emotional intimacy, health. You put on top of that perceptual uh, impairments in, in perceptual systems of hearing, vision, vestibular balance. Uh, for firefighters, um, specifically, we get we're concerned about the the disruptions to just regular hydration and nutrition. When do you eat? When do you get eat a meal? When do you get to drink uh, enough water? Uh, if you're out on calls all day long, wearing a, a suit, protective equipment that isn't easy to, to pee in, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to probably drink less, drink less, to, so you can avoid that problem. Uh, certainly, we have transition uh, issues that are really significant. What does a soldier do after a career in the military? How do they transition out of the military into, a, into civilian life? How do they find a job? How do they take their skills and translate them to skills that, that the civilian sector values? I, I, I kind of compare it to, it's sort of like if, if I were picked up and dropped in a whole other universe and told, Okay, everybody here speaks a version of English. Everybody here is similar culture from you, but there are these big differences. And oh, by the way, you're no longer a psychologist. Your PhD is over. That was your prior career. Now you got to find something new to do. And you got to figure out how to navigate these systems that you've never navigated before. That's, and you got to do all of that with these injuries that we just, just described. So, that's that's a that's that's a that's a huge challenge for veterans. Now let's talk about responders. I am in awe of what of what responders do every week. I don't know how you work twenty four hour shift and then go home, or a forty eight hour shift and then go home. Law enforcement, it might be an eight, ten, twelve hour shift and then go home. But those constant transitions from work to home, work to home. All the things that you're bringing home, you know, what happened today? Are you bringing that home? And how are you bringing it home? And I think, you know, we got to acknowledge uh, the last piece of this, which, which Shady talked about, and that's the existential issues. How do we handle uh, failures where maybe somebody died or was badly injured or hurt? How do we handle uh, that sense of I survived, but somebody else didn't. Um, loss, grief, even even things like what did it all mean? When you look back and you reflect on the work that you've done, do you feel good about it? There's a lot of soldiers in America who who are asking the question right now: Why were we even in Afghanistan? All the 
all the blood and sacrifice and treasure that we put into that that uh, I don't even know what to call it that that um, that chapter of 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 our of our history uh, in the war effort. What does it mean? We just we just abruptly pulled out. And we left a lot of good people behind, um, and I can talk about that if if we want to. But there was an that was an existential shock to to the veterans of America. Um, I think law enforcement and firefighters have existential shocks on a regular basis, um, including and you guys both mentioned it. It's not just you're sacrificing to help people and to save people and to, to be the rescuer, to be that, that backstop of we're going to come. If, if you need us, we'll be there. How do you do that? And then accept all the daggers that uh, society is now pointing at, at you guys, the defund the police, the vilification of responders. Uh, that's happened in many segments of, of of our society. To me, that is a betrayal. Um, and you see, just like our soldiers, many of our soldiers feel that the generals and admirals betrayed them. The government betrayed them. I, I think that's that's a common feeling and a common reaction, and justifiably so in responders. Where's the society that you're working for? Where are they? Why aren't they? I shouldn't even say they. I should say we. Stay away from they.com. Why, <laughs> why aren't we, as a society, why aren't we elevating our awareness and saying, you know what? These people save us at great cost. They save and protect us at great cost to themselves and to their families. We can do better by them, and we should. And yet we're not. Absolutely. Well, I mean, for one of the things that I've talked about a lot, and I want to get to, to JD in response to this, when we sign up, as you said, we signed up for this, you sign up to be away from your family. You know, your family understands the sacrifice. And I think that's the real kind of uh, unrecognized element of service of the, of the family that we leave behind, the children that we miss their games, their Christmases, etc. But what I didn't realize till I got deep, deep in my career was the impact of the absolute shit show that is the firefighter work week. You know, the the, the insanity that the people that bag my groceries in, in, in the store tap out at 40 hours as they should. But the person who will wake up from a dead sleep and five minutes later will be on a roof with a saw in their hand or searching a, a building that we're fine with them working 56 before you get mandatory 80 hours a week. So this is the real aha moment to me is you've got all these other things that we've listed, but rather than create an environment for, for our responders to thrive, we've done the exact opposite and create yes. an environment that will guarantee mental ill health, cancer, heart disease, musculoskeletal injuries, and, and more. Yeah, And then and we that, don't provide the care for those yeah. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. We don't. Pro all of those things have happened. We don't provide the care. And I think, if I could be cynical for a moment, it's only it's because the only way a responder can tap out is through PTSD. It's the only box that we can tap out by. Yet, it only affects 
less than 30% of us, truly. If you look at the symptoms that define what PTSD is, they are very quickly being diluted and lots of things are being added to it, which is diluting and affecting the people that truly have it from receiving true care. So I think the first part of, you know, my policy brain says, well, it's because the only way for us to tap out is through PTSD. And that's not, that's the only option. So by acknowledging that operator syndrome and firefighter syndrome and police syndrome or whatever it is, is is a thing and pushing it, if we as a community push it as an ability to receive proper care, then it gives us another avenue to, to receive care to, so we can be an advocate and unite as a community to, to stand up and say, no, you can't do that because of this. If you do that from a health and safety perspective, look at the recognition of this, you know, injury and have it legislatively mandated. Well, that's going to be about 50 years from now. Um, And James, you and I talked about this really. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Yes, please. Oh, my. Well, I wanted to chime in on you. You went cynical there for a minute. And so I want to join you. I want to join okay. you. In Let's go. I'm not just cynical. I'm, I'm disgusted. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to say why. I left the VA in 2006 and I loved working at the VA. I loved working with the patients, but I could not take the bureaucracy of the system. And I would say to this day, the VA hasn't really changed since 2006. It's grown a lot. Um, It's bigger. Um, They've built up the mental health workforce dramatically since I left. But the VA cannot show any administrative data that any of their patients with PTSD are getting better. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've got a goose egg. Mm -hmm. I think we could almost just stop right there and go, wait a minute, why? Mm-hmm. And, and the VA doesn't, they don't, they don't want to answer that question. And I think we've got very powerful vested interests, not at the level of the person in, who's, you know, the therapist in the clinic. But if you go up the chain of command, you've got a very large, powerful mental health industry mm-hmm. that. And that's psychiatry, psychology, social work, and 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 advanced practice nursing to a much less lesser degree. Um, VA has a has a monopoly on research, for example, with in PTSD with veterans, virtual monopoly. Mm-hmm. Somebody like me who's no longer VA, I can't apply for for VA research funding. They won't. I'm not eligible for it. Only their people, yeah. and to be one of their people. You have to abide by all the unwritten expectations and rules. Mm-hmm. I didn't abide by those rules when I was at the VA, and I was punished for it frequently. I mean, my first year, I was punished because I worked more than 40 hours a week. They mm-hmm. caught me treating patients uh, in the evening or in the mornings. Oh, heaven forbid. And I was literally punished for that. Um, then I had some research. I mean, much of my research was about treatment, but some of my research was systems looking at what is the, are there people gaming the system for disability payments? Um, we did a study that found there were actually people coming into the VA getting disability who weren't even veterans who had never served. 
But the bureaucracy has no incentive to identify and change because, oh, and I'll tell you what they say. They'll say, yeah, there's some of that, but it's more important that we that we cast a, a wide net and are available to everybody. So we're not going to worry about a few, a few people uh, who maybe are coming in and gaming the system or doing things that, that really aren't uh, getting benefits they really don't deserve or, or merit. Um, and I was, and we could get into talking about the whole medical approach to, to what's happened during the COVID pandemic, <laughs> but I've been, I, I mean, I was canceled in 2004 and five. I mean, I was investigated one of my, one of my papers that I published, I was investigated by it and it was, a, it was a witch hunt. It was, why did you publish this paper? Uh, bring all the, all the documentation. I got, I got notified at like nine or 10 o'clock at night when I was at home that the next morning I had to show up at this inquisition from central office. So I had to go into the hospital the next morning at I think six 30 or seven uh, for a conversation where I was going to have to defend myself. And I was able to defend myself and I had some good help from the research office. The research, uh, director showed up with all, I, I dotted all the I's and crossed all the, all the T's. And, and so after that, they left it alone. I didn't, but, but they continued to lean on me. Mm-hmm. I could not have done this interview when I was with the VA, or if they gave me permission to do it, I would have, I had a, person who was a PR person who was essentially kind of assigned to me for a couple of years. She followed me around. Hmm. She checked on my groups several times, group therapies. She came in just to look to see who was in there to make sure there weren't journalists or somebody in in there. Um, So I I had a heavy censorship laid on top of me by the VA system. Now that I've left VA, I can can say anything I want. Um, Are they helping any veterans? Show me who they've helped. Show me who those veterans are. Uh, they can't do it, and they won't. And they don't modify what they do. And this is this is what burns mm-hmm. me about the whole mental health. Mm-hmm. I can call it a field or I can call it an industry, and I'm going to call it an industry. I agree. If you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you have anxiety or PTSD or anger, are they checking your hormones? They're not. That's not part of routine mental health practice. Mm -hmm. Are they routinely doing sleep studies? Generally, no. Are they even giving treatments such as stellate ganglion block therapy, ketamine therapy, uh, psychedelic medications, hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Um, There's a a very uh, good... um, a uh, new ver- new way to more precision. I'm not saying this very well to provide transcranial magnetic stimulation with more precision using EEG. Are they using that? Now, the answer is not no across the board. There are VAs, there are programs, there are mental health clinici- clinicians that do these things. But more often than not, in fact, I would bet if you did a survey, most psychologists who work with trauma patients don't even know what stellate ganglion block therapy is. Maybe they've heard of it, but if they, have they used it, have they referred their own patients uh, to get it? Mm-mm. I virtually never hear of that. So what, what I am seeing, if I, if I could even just take this to the next step is, is responders and, and veterans and even service members are just giving up as JD said, they're giving up on these, 
healthcare, modern medicines, healthcare approach. They're giving up on it and they're finding their own solutions. If you're a Navy SEAL, you could call the SEAL Future Foundation and they have a health program. And you could talk to Joey Fio at the health program. He's going to, he and his guys are going to have some conversations with you. But the list of potential treatments um, is very different from what the VA would consider. Mm -hmm. So there are these communities of, of people now that are, are, are becoming their own, they're finding their own solutions. And that's what JD has done. Well, JD, talk to me about your journey then. So operator syndrome is out there. You're obviously wearing a firefighter uniform. You've tried the quote unquote traditional mental health routes. What was your kind of journey out of that, that, you know, the, the worst place that you found yourself at that point back to where you are now? Um, so first of all, yeah, hmm. Ooh, that's a big question. Okay. Um, obviously the first part of the journey starts with recognizing that I was not okay. The second part of the journey was going through traditional check the boxes, straight up BS and trying to, trying to follow the slaughtering herd of cows down into PTSD and moral injury. And I, I'm poking fun. It's a true thing. And, and I'm, you know, I'm being a little bit, I'm still on the cynical train. Perhaps I'll get off now. But, um, you know, but trying to do the traditional things first, um, because that's what we knew. That's what's communicated to us. And I'm going to circle back to that because it, it plays on what Chris is saying, but we'll finish what you've asked first and hopefully I'll remember to come back. But, you know, and, and, and then, you know, when all of those things didn't work, I now have, I'm left with two choices. I sit and just accept defeat or I don't. And I don't with anything in my life. It's not who I am. It's not who I will ever be. Um, and I wanted to leverage that. And very quickly, I started to uncover research or learn that I was not the only one that was in this position where physiologically I was mimicking mental health and everybody wanted to only address my mental health and that I needed help from a physiological perspective. And if I could correct that, then I could return back to service and I could do better and be stronger. So I really just, as, again, I, I, when I saw the operator syndrome framework, I really didn't know what to do with it, except for I felt like a, a really strong, intense, like that's gonna work here. That's gonna work. We can do this. And when I, when I remember, I remember Chris's face, you know, just, you know, first time meeting him and he's just like, girl, you're whacked. Like, who are you? You know, that's how I felt anyway. And um, I was like, no, that's like not I... true. That's not true. I never, <laughs> I, never even, I never even thought that. Ah, Actually, um, I didn't think it then. Maybe I think it now. Uh, touche. All right. Maybe you I'll got a resting today. whacked face. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've earned that position now, though. So I, I feel good about this. Yes. Um, but I... Uh, and when I saw operator syndrome and I saw the framework and I knew that it was a, a job specific framework, it, there is just no way 
and let me back up. It's a job specific framework that saw the individual as an individual, not as a collective. And one of the things that I get really, frankly, pissed off about is when you stand in front of a clinician and you're like, see me. I need you to see me. Don't see your treatment. See me. Um, because I know me. And if I can know me, then you should know me. Like, that's just how I feel. And you should take the time. Is it hard work? Yeah. But is it the right work? Yeah. So do it. So when I saw operator syndrome, that it became a job-specific opportunity, but also an individual treatment process that weighed what was truly injured against what I felt is injured, and it merged the two, it became a 360 perspective. And it made sense for the first time. And when I approached Dr. C and said, you know, hey, can we do this for first responders? Can we do it for our people? Because our people are dying. And when you look at, we did, uh, we read a study that talked about, uh, it was a large meta-analysis, like a huge, like bring all the data in kind of scientific study. And it talked about how successful PTSD was as a treatment plan. I think the numbers were like, it ranged from like 8% to 86. You have an 8% to an 86% chance of getting, you know, better if you have PTSD. Okay, hold on. Let me pull PTSD off the shelf and insert heart surgery and saying you have an eight to an 86% chance of surviving heart surgery. Uh, what? Like, how are we accepting this? This doesn't make any sense. So when we started to build out the framework, I started living the framework. I did 100 days, you know, plus of I'm talking severe deep dive, like popsicle headache every five minutes trying to figure out what I was exposed to or what I had been through from a physiological perspective to a, a psychological perspective to a social psychology perspective to a physical trauma, like you name it. Like, what was I eating? What was I drinking? What was I? And I was like, is this a thing in our world? And it so quickly became apparent that it was. And it so, you know, and I even had my husband do it and uh, the happy wife, happy life. I was leaning hard onto that and uh, it almost got us a divorce, but he's still with me and still loves me, I think. Um, but he did it too. And uh, Chris, did you want to chime in for a sec? Well, I was just going to say, say, give some of the details on, on, on exactly what you did, the monitoring, the tasks, the... Um... Uh, I strapped sensors to my body and walked everywhere. Um, I bought, I went on Amazon and bought off the shelf stuff from whatever I could possibly figure out to, to grab. And I, I tracked where I went, when I went, who I went with, where I sat on the truck. You, you, I tracked it all. I tracked what I ate. Um, and I, your uh, the wearables were also, were tracking your sleep, yep. your REM and slow wave sleep, your heart rate, your heart rate variability. You were also doing uh, lab tests too. I was so blood tests, uh, saliva yep. tests, urine. I was doing. I was doing them at work. Um, I jumped into urine tests, uh, glucose tests. You know, I jumped jumped into tons of different blood panel tests. I, when I would leave work, I would go straight to the lab 
And um, we had a naturopathic doctor in Ontario, uh, Dr. Michelle O'Neill, that jumped on board. She's like, yep, let's do this. This sounds like fun. She's spicy. I love her. She's she's just like willing to kind of push the boundaries. Um, and she's kind of joined us on our, on this journey. But she was like, let's do this because we kept looking for research. And one of the things that Dr. Chris found from the firefighters perspective was when we hold the scientific studies for firefighting compared to the, the, the veterans, what was it something like 15,000, Chris, uh, military studies and 500 fire? Yeah. And I think it was the year 2021 was the year we looked at. Right. So in that year, in the medical literature, there were over 15,000 studies, or there were about 15,000 studies um, involving veterans' health, all topics, all medical topics. For firefighters, it was 500. Mm. Well, that's what made me laugh. Earlier, you said you spent two years poring over the research. And I was like, you mean two minutes? Because I know the firefighter. <laughs> and then most of those are going to be like, well, here's what a, you know, a, a pistol grip will do on a nozzle. Or here's how duck walking will help you. And almost nothing on sleep deprivation and shift work and testosterone and all these things right. that are actually yeah. behind why we're dying. Yeah. 100%. And most of the studies that I pulled or that we pulled actually were transferable like we just like it was like okay this is as close to as we can possibly get or this is related to specific to but uh, you know and I think that was one of the things that surprised you Chris was just like what like we know nothing about your profession we know nothing about your people mm -hmm. um and and there's a good chance that you know we as a community are not open as much as we should be to engaging scientific research outside of cancer we're so accustomed to doing cancer or sleep studies, but there is so much about our people that we as a community need to embrace having those scientific studies done on us. Um, there's a scientific study here in Ontario that is going to be doing that is doing um, uh, brain imaging that I'm participating in. There's crew there, like my entire truck is coming with me. We have to build a community that also embraces and allows that in if we want the answers. And that's something that we haven't done in the past very well. And if we can open that up and embrace that, then hopefully the scientific community, if you're not listening, you should be. We're inviting you in to take care of us and find out you know, more about us. I'll tell you exactly why there's a resistance to it, though. For example, mm. and it's happened uh, two departments ago that I work for, they come in, they do a sleep study, they tell the, the organization, yes, your firefighters are chronically sleep deprived. And they're like, oh, thanks for the research, fling. And then they just carry yeah. on doing the same shit. So after a while, yeah. the firefighters are like, why are we even bothering? Because sure. they are ignoring all of the data. It's the same with the military. Like People ask me, oh, you know, do you have, do you have research to show that a 40-hour week is healthier than the 56? I'm like, I'm, I'm fucking sorry. Say that again. Did you just ask me to prove this common sense item? And then you bring in stuff from the Navy and the Army and the Air Force and the sporting world. They're like, oh, but it's, have you got anything for the fire service? I mean, you're absolutely right because human beings are so different in other professions, mm -hmm. you know? So <laughs> this is what's so maddening. And I can understand the resistance is, you know, when you do participate in these research, and they do absolutely nothing with the data. So we have to actually hold the people accountable. Hey, when they come back with this data, you actually have to do something with it. Don't just walk around and say, oh, yeah, you're sleep deprived and then just leave again. You know, that's why the freaking fire stations look like the bar in Star Wars because there's so many damn CPAPs because rather than actually fix the underlying problem, <laughs> they just slap a mask on your face. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. Um, I completely agree with you. Uh, touche. Uh, you trump me. We're done. Yeah, good. Good talking to you. Um, <laughs> but yeah. no, yeah, and and but that again, trying to take a different approach, trying to understand what's truly going on, and the only way to do it is to do that three sixty. The framework was laid by Dr. Chris and his team, and you know. Now, Chris and I and another gentleman by the name of Brad Wiley, we're just trying to to push the boundaries again and say, like, we can do this other places. We can we can take the time to truly see the individual for what they are. Now, going back now, I'm going to circle back. I actually remember to circle back. So, Chris, you had talked earlier about kind of the VA and the bureaucracy and why you left and now they can't, you know, they got nothing on you now. So you can say whatever you want. And I, I love that about Chris, by the way. Um, it truly is, is so refreshing. You know, I'll say, we'll, we'll get into a meeting and I'll say, no, like, tell me what you really think. And he's like, okay, it just speaks his mind. And it's, and it's to be respected. And it's, it's our comfort place. If you're trying to tell me fluffy stuff, I don't trust you, you know, tell me I'm a piece of crap. Um, Cause that's what I'm used to. Right. But um, mental health, I'd like to propose for a moment that mental health has become a business. I'd like to propose for a second that the insurance an company, ah, an, industry. an industry, and as is what you're saying, the mental health industry has become a very lucrative position. The, from between, I saw a statistic by the World Health Organization not too long ago that between now and 2020, 2030, we will have spent $6 trillion on mental health globally. And if I, some of the things that I learned from an insurance perspective, let's back this up to the insurance companies that oversee the fire departments and oversee all these other organizations. Um, when the workplace injury occurs, call it PTSD, because that's the only box we can check. When that individual comes off and it their $100,000 a year salary is, is being paid while they are trying to rest and recover, the insurance companies are making 24% of profit on that individual that is currently off trying to re, uh, receive you know, care and, and recovery. Additionally to that, they're also receiving percentage on every single treatment plan that goes in. So you're telling me that you've developed a system for care that becomes profitable Show me where the motivation factor is to truly deliver care. It's not there. It doesn't exist. And so we as firefighters, we as police, we as military, we have this opportunity to unite. And we have to unite. We have to come together because shit happens when we come together. You think about how many times a policy has come down and chief is like, yo, it's going to be this way. And the firefighters kind of chuckle and they say, that's nice. That's cute, chief right? It does happen, but we have to unite as one. We have to come together as one and we have to be advocates for ourselves. And I'd like to, and, and one of the things that you, James, and I spoke about when we first chatted was, I'd like to believe that fire chiefs across the nation are not intentionally trying to hurt us. In my career pathway, I have been fortunate, I'd like to say, to work alongside and alongside several chiefs i've worked for about seven or eight different chiefs and i've been in different secondments where i've been accountable to each one of them for different projects or or things trying to contribute to the operations of the department and each one of them 
had a a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde moment. Dr. Jekyll is having to answer to corporation, the those above them, which is those that dictate how much you get for a budget. And then the other one is I used to be a firefighter and I still care about my guys. And then there's also the the fire chief that's in the same guy that says guy or gal that says, what is my initiative? What is my agenda that I want to leave as a mark on this department? What do I want to be recognized for? Chief Brunacini, let's just use him for an example. Everybody aspires to leave or be great, to be great within, to be recognized, to have something, some sort of legacy behind their department. And that, unfortunately, most of the time takes precedence because it's their agenda for what they want. And so the sleep studies that are coming in, if they don't match up with the agenda, then they are irrelevant in that moment, despite the fact that they are the right thing for the guys and gals that are serving. And if the corporation above is saying, you can't have this budget without this scientific proof or these KPI markers, then the chief has to figure out how to get those. And, and a lot of the times the individuals that are sitting in this position lack the experience to achieve exactly what's being asked. And so it falls apart or they get ADD or, you know, ADHD and they see this big shiny thing over here and they go whoop and nothing gets done. Nothing ever gets completed. You have about 50,000 projects undergo and not a single one is being finished. So how does that relate back to operator syndrome or firefighter syndrome? Well, at the end of the day, if we as firefighters are sitting around the coffee table complaining about how happy we are, then we need to do something for ourselves. And the, the opportunity that I believe Chris and I wanted to come together with is to create this framework that don't rely on your department because it's not going to happen. They're, they don't have the resources, time, or ability to take care of us. Some of them want to help us no matter what. They want to help us a lot and they love us and they used to be us and they remember. Some of them ha used to be us are too far away from it and they forget what it's like to be us. So at the end of the day, it's up to us. It's up to us to get up and do something about our own mental health, physiological health and our performance. We need to return back to the traditional ways of being a community but ignite a new way of doing business, which is have a cup of coffee around the coffee table and say, you know, one of the things is you put your, you know, all of you go get your blood work, put it on the table, have a discussion. Hey, my blood works like this. My blood works like this. Oh man, yours is crap. Wow. What's wrong with you? What you eating? Right. Will you sleep? It's, three, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. Go take it, take a nap. Your blood work sucks, you know? And then we find weaknesses on a whole new level and things at work get fun again, right? We can't expect others to do it for us. And this framework gives us a new foundation to, to take control over our own health. And that was that for me, that's the perseverance, perseverance piece because I'm never gonna get anywhere by anybody else telling me how to get there. I gotta start taking steps on my own. And a lot of the times if we don't know what those steps are, we don't know how to start. But this framework gives us an opportunity to learn how to take one step at a time and make choices and habits and changes for ourselves. And then we know in the firefighter community and first responder community, as soon as one awesome thing happens, you're like, oh, Joey, did you see this? Yo, Tom, check this out. Do you buy this new watch? You know, why is this any different? 
it's a new way of taking care of yourself. That's all it is. Well, just to add to what you are you know, bringing to the fire service, I think the other part of the conversation needs to be that we unify, as I call people, educated and angry is what we need to be, to change <laughs> yeah. the work week. Because everything we've been talking about is really a, a byproduct of the fact that rather than creating an environment for us to, to thrive, we literally exist constantly in an environment that's set up to fail. That's why the yeah. fit guys always get hurt. That's why we have prevalence of cancer and heart disease and obesity and addiction and all these other things in our profession. Because if you create chaos and it's someone's life for 10, 20, 30 years and you work them far greater than the person with very little stress, it's you know it's a foregone conclusion. So we the insanity to me is that we waste so much money on workman's comp claims and overtime and medical retirements and wrongful death lawsuits and all these things that contribute that we're bleeding money. And again, oh, show me the research. Well, again, okay, if you're a complete fucking idiot, let me lay that out for you. You are working 56 hours a week before you ever tell someone they can't go home. These people that were standing on the draw ground 10 years ago were some of the most physically and mentally fit men and women, and that came into this department. Has it ever occurred to you why are they like this 10 years later? Why are they mentally burnt out, physically falling apart? So understanding the ownership piece, understanding the empowerment of of blood work and, and all these other areas so that we can look at our own being and being like, okay, where am I doing well? Where am I not doing well? Is a big part of it. But the other part is we have to create an environment. I just had a conversation with Ken Stone, who's in charge of IHMC. And the chief, the fire chief that was with me, because I'm part of a, a, not even a research project, a collation of data to present to the fire service to show them why they're killing their firefighters. Because we had two suicides within three weeks of each other here just a few weeks ago. He's like, he asked him, oh, you know, what do you do for home and performance? And the guy's like, well, we have a, a gym in a central location and we do an annual, you know, fitness. It's not even a punitive test. It's an annual fitness event. And he goes, that's not human performance. And this is the problem. The box checking, oh, we have a fucking pec deck in station six underneath some clothes and blankets. That's not what we're talking about. If you're going to ask a PJ or a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret to operate, the goal is to set, you know, an environment that's going to allow them to thrive. The highest level of, you know, equipment, training, nutrition, um, psychology, all these areas. And then you look at police, fire, you know, dispatch, uh, EMS. We're the polar opposite of your favorite sports stars, your hockey star, your football star. And we have to realize that we need to pull these men and women back into uh, an environment that allows them to to rise. You will hugely impact the mental health problems the cancer issues no one ever talks about the immunity and the resilience in the cancer conversation it's your gear wash your gear wipe your helmet well yeah but also don't be morbidly obese and get some sleep and all these other things that are going to contribute so i'm monologuing a little bit because it's something that i'm so passionate about they always put it here squarely on our shoulders oh well those guys don't sleep at night yeah, that's a good part of the conversation. Sleep hygiene and ownership and not taking overtime in a place where you're going to be working overnight. But how about we also look in the mirror at your own work week and go to what I would argue an industry standard 2472. Give these men and women enough time to recover from being awake or sleeping with one eye open for 24 hours straight every fucking third day. Yeah, 100%. 
Uh, <laughs> sorry, he just did the mic job. It's pretty good. I, uh, I, I absolutely like, yeah, no, 100%. And they need to stop as in they.com. Google it. It's a thing. Um, no, but they need chiefs and it's more council. Councils need to understand that if it's not just about the numbers on the page. If you have never called 911, you do not have an appreciation for the service that these men and women provide. Stop and think about the most important person in your life being close to death and you're, you need to call 911 for that person that you love intensely or you're about to lose a piece of property, a house, a home, an heirloom that has been passed down in generations and you have to call 911 and the people that are coming to you need to care about you. In my particular story, I stood on the doorstep of a 911 call looking at somebody's house on fire where there was possibly tra trapped people on the inside and I looked at the house and I said, that 911 call is insignificant to me in this moment. You don't matter to me, civilian. Your house doesn't matter to me, civilian. So for those of you that sit on council, you need to understand that what you push down into the floor, push down into the firefighters, the police, the paramedics as an agenda, because you have a number on your page that you have to obtain is going to directly affect you someday. And if you can't stop and uh, uh, rationalize that, then you shouldn't have your position. You shouldn't have your job. And chief, what I'm asking from you is for you to remember that these, that you used to be one of these people and the very state of becoming an empty shell is not acceptable. And so you need to return back to the traditional ways of fighting for those individuals. And then us as a firefighting community that are working all the time need to say to each other, go take a nap because we don't know what's coming. Each level has an obligation to contribute to the solution. It is not just about one particular person being correct or incorrect. We have to come together, we have to unite, and we have to hold each other accountable. And as a firefighter community under the IAFF, you guys got to step up. There's a whole bunch of people that are literally dying and committing suicide. What We've had probably 50 guys commit suicide since we've just been on this podcast across the, across the nation. That's not okay. And to just accept it and not hold ourselves accountable for the tiny little piece that we have in that big equation. It's a huge equation. It's nothing one, not one piece, not one action is going to solve it. There are three levels of accountability that need to take place. It is not until we start to move together in a collective and take accountability for each piece that we have control over that we can come together and make a difference. That's it's, it is not an easy fix. But they have to stop and see faces, not numbers. And that stems from the fact that we're pushing people into leadership positions because of seniority, or we're pushing people into leadership positions because they can no longer do the job, 
or we're pushing people into the leadership positions just because they want to advance doesn't give you the right to truly be a leader, to protect the people below you. There's a lot that comes with that, that we forget to invest in these people and making them leaders. We just put them in as managers. And next thing you know, we're just moving things around because we don't really know how to lead and we don't really know how to make change. But the culture at the firehouse for me is where I've decided that I can control. If I look at, if I look at my coworker and he looks like a bag of hammers, I'm like, buddy, go take a nap. I don't have to be up at seven o'clock to wash the trucks. I need to sleep. It's a priority. I'll, I'll wash the trucks before I leave. I will not hand off a dirty truck. But if my guy needs to sleep in, let him sleep in because I, he's got a brand new baby at home and he's coming now into shift and he's running all night. So from a cultural perspective, we can do better. We really can. From a chief's position, he can do better. And from a council, he or she can do better. And from a council perspective, they have an, a part of the equation as well. I don't like pointing fingers at any one particular group. I just think that what I can control is in my own house, in my own fire station. And I know that a bottom-up approach works, but it's not the only answer. Absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, your own house, I got to go pick up my son and take him to a track event shortly. Um, be- ah, so yeah. before we we close out, talk to me about the resources available to people. How can they find out more about you know the uh, firefighter syndrome, the framework, and even if they want to participate in a study? Well, there, you you just asked about a number of things there. I'll, I'll address. <laughs> <a few of> them. <laughs> We, we did, we have a short article that we wrote. It's very easy to read. Uh, it's probably a 10 minute read, uh, that was published, uh, with Crackle magazine, Crackle with a Y. Um, and, and that's online. So if you, if you Google firefighter syndrome, Crackle magazine you should find it. Uh, I'm writing a book right now that I'm about halfway finished titled Operator Syndrome. So that that will be available in, uh, in the near future. JD doesn't know this, but the very next book I'm going to write is the Responder Syndrome book that she's going to help me with. That's what she didn't know. <laughs> uh, so I'm telling you now, JD, you're, you're helping me write this book. You heard it okay. here first. We, yeah. we, are, we are working on a number of, of a lot of different I would say, let's just say a lot of different irons in the fire. Uh, we are developing a clinic, a 360 clinic. In fact, that's the name of it um, in, in JD's neighborhood, um, so to speak. I work with a lot of foundations, um, and I'll, I'll toot the horn of SEAL Future Foundation again. Um, they have become so frustrated with the lack of, of responsivity from the VA and Department of Defense and just healthcare providers in general, that they've created their own health program. I chair a medical advisory board that's multidisciplinary. uh, So we advise them and we work with them. Um, We are preparing um, a a framework that that will live on the website that will, I think, be very relevant to responders and operators, not just SEALs, but for, for the whole community. Um, we're putting together a website with our medical advisory board that will have a lot of the information on here are the types of injuries, here are the types of assessments to pursue, and here's the types of treatments for each of the conditions. So it'll be you know an educational um, piece. 
um, that will be widely available in addition to the books that were that are coming out. Um, there's a, I think we're moving into a, a time now where wearable fitness trackers, such as, you know, I mean, there's, there's five or six of them out there that are all really good. I wear the whoop strap, um, that tracks sleep and calories burned and heart rate variability and, and, and so on and so forth. And you can put all that, that information together, uh, and, and get a lot of insights from it. I don't think people are routinely doing it, but we're, we're now, a lot of us are advising, uh, the people we talk to, to start tracking their own, uh, it's not about for, for workouts. Yeah. You can track your workouts and calories burned and all that. That's, that, that's jazzy and that's cool. But more important in my opinion is tracking one's sleep. There's a, there's a, another, uh, brand new startup I work with, um, that is, creating a, a system to take the wearable data and, in, and inform it through an app uh, to give personal insights related to um, psychological, cognitive functioning, sleep functioning, physiological functioning from a mental health perspective. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of new tools and a new new approaches that are going to become widely much more widely available. The problem, the, the big problem though, is when do we get the medical establishment on board? When do they start adopting some of the things that are working for the community that they're not even offering or considering? Uh, and, 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 and as you said, there'll be a, there'll be a lag. It may take 10 years. It may take 50 years. I know right now the VA and, and, and Department of Defense, um, I've gotten the message from a variety of directions. They do not like operator syndrome as a construct, as a concept. Um, and, and there's a lot of hostility to it as a concept. From the hostility comes from the scientific leadership, the administrative leadership of these bureaucracies. Um, they don't want to deal with it. And it does represent a paradigm shift if if they were to engage it. Yeah. Really, what you need, and what what JD and 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 Michelle are working on with this 360 um, clinic, is you need a multidisciplinary team approach. Mm -hmm. I, as a psychologist, if I'm just doing traditional therapy for PTSD for for my patients, that might help them a little bit. But I could help them so much more if I'm working with an endocrinologist, a sleep specialist, a pain pain management specialist. If I'm aware of all the other emerging treatments that are out there now, um, you were seeing neurologists and anesthesiologists setting up clinics where they are more effectively treating patients than the mental health industry is. There's an anesthesiologist in Chicago, Dr. Lipoff, he does a five-day protocol of ketamine and stellate ganglion block therapy, where he's a directly treating the sympathetic nervous system. Patients leave his clinic, and they most of them, you know, are are, are doing much much better. Brilliant. Well, I want to thank you so much. We could talk for hours more. I'm sure I mean, there's so much more we could unpack, but uh, I do have to, to let you go. But I want to thank you so much. I mean, I, we could always do a, a part two down the road if you're interested. Maybe when the book is ready to go, we can kind of circle around and, and help promote that. Absolutely. 
Um, but yeah, but I just want to thank you so much. It's been such an interesting perspective, obviously, JD, with your more lived experience and then Chris with your more clinical experience. And when those two came together, I agree 100% with the whole holistic view of, of you know, physical and mental health. I mean, you know, we, we study in medicine, you know, this is this is the respiratory system and this is the circulatory system and we, we segment them and we forget that this is all part of a, an organism that relies on each of those pieces. So... They're all interrelated. Absolutely. And if you have PTSD, you're not going to sleep very good. And if you're not sleeping very good, that that makes it harder to have good mental health. Um, They're all interrelated. And we don't treat them as though they are. We treat them as though they're separate things. Mm -hmm.